Right, let's get started. Do we have to say the whole thing again, like Ed and Nick on the Asia Pacific, or do we not need well, to the, do that anymore? The theme tune ends with uh, "Welcome to Ed and Nick on the Asia Pacific." Although we should say, um, "Welcome to Episode Four. Episode Four. Who would have thought we'd get this far? I know that's a month's worth of work, mate. A month's worth of work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. Yeah, and it's a Friday, so should we give some apologies for not getting out earlier? We are a little bit late. Um, we intended to carry on recording every Thursday for release on Thursday night slash Friday morning. Uh, it's now nearly Friday lunchtime, and we're only just recording now. But that's because we're busy. We had a lot on on this yeah. week. We've been away. We have. We have been away. Yeah. So uh, feedback from last week's pod. Um, uh, do we have any statistics? Well, uh, pleasingly, again, we're into triple figures. Uh, so that's positive. But also, interesting statistics. We now get a breakdown of the geographical location of our listeners. Oh. We know where you are, broadly. Uh, and what I found quite remarkable is that uh, only about 55% of our listeners are in the United Kingdom. Really? Yeah. Well, that's a bit... Now, here's a test, because obviously, again, this will illustrate how little you do with the rest of the work on this podcast, because you have access to this information, but clearly don't look at it, because you don't get the statistics until I reveal them on the pod each week. Okay. So, which country in the world has the second highest number of Ed and Nick on the Asia-Pacific listeners? Um, Based upon an earlier conversation, I would probably say Sweden. Incorrect. Okay, but we have a listener there. We do have... I think we've got two listeners in Sweden. Wow. We so definitely have one. Hi, Carl. Hi, Carl. We do know his name is Carl. Uh, it's not just randomly guessing that a Swedish person must be called Carl. Okay, uh, but he is a Swedish person. He is a Swedish person in Sweden listening to this podcast. Oh. So, other countries. Um, let me think. Uh, maybe the United States of America? No. Again, we do have some listeners in the United States. Uh, hi, Garrett. Oh, hi, Garrett. Um, let me think. Oh, sh- no. Do we know anyone in Australia? I mean, I, I do know some. I know, I know. Uh, yeah, which actually know. makes me wonder because we don't have any listeners in Australia. So that means my friends in New Australia market. are not listening. New, New market. Mo- New market, room to expand. <laughs> this is positive. <laughs> um, is it, is it somewhere that we wouldn't ordinarily think that we're having it. What I like I... about this quiz so far is that none of your guesses have been in the Asia Pacific. No, hang on a second. This is where I was going now. If we have a lot of student listeners who are perhaps on their year abroad, I would say South Korea. Which is third. Japan. Which is fourth. China? No. I think we might be blocked in China. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, if um, looking if at today's not. topics as well. <laughs> we're not yet. We will be. <laughs> yeah. Um, Taiwan? It features. Maybe I'll just tell you the answer. Yeah, I think that may help. The answer is Malaysia. Really? Thank you to the Malaysians. Salamat datang to our listeners in Malaysia. Oh, oh. Some other, some other feedback that we got this week. Graham Bagley's been back in touch. Oh, hi, Graham. Hi, Graham. Um, he enjoyed our little section on running last week, and he particularly wanted to point out 
that uh, I was incorrect in specifying that that uh, those running shoes were used by Kipchoge in his uh, in his attempt on the marathon because in fact it was Nike. And he sent me a massive long list of explanation about that, which I did promise I'm going to read out. But on reflection, I'm not going to because it was boring. Uh, but thanks for letting us know, Graham. Yeah, that's great. Now we know. I think it's important to mention that we did get some feedback again from Dr. Sojin Lim. You'll recall that on each week so far, she's complained about the quality of sound. So I contacted her directly after the release of episode three and said, so what did you think? And here's her comment in its entirety. The sound is fine. I said, okay. Anything else you'd like to add? No, that's all. Let's take that. Yep. The sound is fine. Take Good. That. We've taken our three episodes and we've sorted out the sound. Yep. No, I'm pretty happy. We've satisfied Soju. Yes. Okay. So before we go any further, some people may be aware we lost uh, a friend of ours this week. Uh, Nick, a good friend of yours. Yes, um, indeed. Bruce Jacobs. So um, perhaps you want to say a, a few words. Yeah, just that it's a bit of a difficult time, really. Um, he was a... Uh, he was a close friend. He was somebody quite important to us here at the University of Central Lancashire. He's always being very firmly behind us and all our endeavours. So, yes, big loss. Big loss to the world, I would say. Yeah, um, a towering scholar. I didn't have the pleasure of knowing him as you did. Um, but obviously we're grateful for the support that he gave us in what we're trying to do here. Um, and, yeah, he'll be sadly missed. Indeed. Let's move on to Critique of the Week. And I guess there's only one place we can really start, Nick, and that is with the story with... We never intended to do this story every week, but uh, it's just hard to talk about recent events without talking about what's happening in Hong Kong. And especially because, again, things moved on and um, there were big developments this week. So there were elections in Hong Kong this week. Yes, there were. 24th of November. Um, 18 districts up for up for election. What became particularly interesting out that is that 17 out of those 18 seats were won by the pro-democracy candidates. Pro-democracy candidates. Yes, um, so that equates to 366 seats. So that, I mean, that was quite significant given the background to the elections themselves, the number of candidates reportedly being beaten up, threatened, um, and also some of the... The accusations of deliberate gerrymandering around certain districts and changes to that to benefit. So, yeah, I think that's a, a fairly significant development, 17 out of the 18 seats. Um, I think key within that is uh, two particular cases, um, that of Junius Ho, who lost the seat. He was a key anti-protest figure and one that we might remember was stood up in strong support for the Yuen Long mob attack um, on July the 21st. And also um, good news on this cut for Jimmy Sham, who was elected. And Yeah, I haven't really followed the gerrymandering accusations very closely. Obviously, the results of the election were resounding. I think 17 out of 18 districts is quite remarkable. There were a number of things that struck me about it. The massive increase in turnout is really striking in a couple of ways. Firstly, I mean, it's a, it was a huge increase in turnout from yeah. previously be well below 50% to well above 70%. But also, a well above 70% tells you that more than a quarter of people registered for vote still didn't vote. So even in a place that is really fighting for its right for, for democracy, 
you still have large numbers of people not engaging in a democratic process. And that's the people who are actually registered to vote. Of course, there are other people who are could be registered to vote but are not. Because one of the other striking things was a huge increase in the number of people registering to vote. So with that increase in turnout, we ended up with a huge number of additional people actually voting. So I think at least what we did get is um, a better snapshot of public opinion in Hong Kong. Right. One of the things we've talked about over the last couple of weeks is whether or not the protesters maintain or retain the support of the wider people of Hong Kong. And we've said that the some of the more extreme violence that we've seen, our feeling is that, that that's not really very well supported by Hong Kongers. But the fact that this election turned out the way that it did, I think demonstrates that the overwhelming majority of people in Hong Kong still very much support the broad aims of this protest movement, even if they don't approve of the more extreme acts of violence that we've seen. And as you pointed out on last week's pod, when I mentioned the um, the... Uh, when I mentioned the guy being burnt alive, mm. that even people deeply involved in the protest themselves have come out very clearly against that kind of action. Yeah. So, again, it's I guess it's important not to allow the narrative to be focused in on the very extreme acts of violence, although I can see why that's a topic and why people want to talk about it. But the feeling in Hong Kong is clearly still very strongly towards supporting the aims of these protests. Yeah. Because the elections themselves are, on one level, not that significant because they're very low level. Uh, you know, it's it's the, it's the equivalent of our local elections in the UK, where we typically get very very low turnout because, you know, you're you're electing parish or local councillors who figure out how often your bins are collected. Although that's really important, but generally speaking, you get low turnout. Not hearing people pay too much attention to that. The difference here is that this was an opportunity for Hong Kongers to be able to express their view. And they did that in very, very clear terms. There's kind of two things there. One, yeah, I agree with you, where you had a significant turnout, but there is still a percentage who hasn't. And I would be interested to know whether or not that these threats of violence towards people going out to protest, not to protest, to vote, would have impacted that percentage. Um, the other thing I think it's quite quite important is that the events that we have seen since the election and i think the most the, the most obvious one would really be the signing of the legislation in the united states before we move on to that maybe we should talk about the chinese media's response because this in itself i thought was quite interesting <clears throat> so these elections received fairly widespread coverage certainly in the west um, and definitely uh, in Hong Kong itself, but in mainland China itself, it would be inaccurate to say it was completely ignored. But the level of coverage was significantly lower, particularly once the results became clear. I think uh, the People's Daily, which, as you know, I'm a massive fan of the People's Daily. I've spent a disproportionate amount of my life paying close attention to it. For those people who are not aware, the People's Daily is... I mean, fundamentally, it's the Communist Party's mouthpiece in China. It is the official newspaper of the Communist Party. It gives you the official line of the Communist Party. It sometimes is overemphasised in its importance because people don't read it for news. Chinese people are not naive enough to think that that's where they're going to get their balanced news from. But they do pay attention to what it says uh, to get what the party line is at this moment in time. By no means all people pay attention to it. The fact is, most people don't read People's Daily. And with good reason. It's boring as shit. Um, I've forgotten my point. Any idea what it might have been? Um, their response. Oh, yeah. So yeah. the point was, they mentioned the Hong Kong elections had been completed 
but just didn't say what the results were. Mm. And I, I think this sort of, we better just not talk about that is, is interesting. But the, um, one of the things I saw was China Daily, which is an English language newspaper, put out a tweet. And maybe we can address the irony of them using Twitter to put this message out there. Twitter, of course, being blocked in mainland China. And they put out a tweet which uh, said that, uh, I'll read it out to you. It's, uh, it's done in a photo style. It's like a meme. Um, and so, it, but it's a cartoon style meme and it shows cues of uh, Hong Kong voters. And it's tra- supposedly showing the difference between the young protesters and the elderly people in Hong Kong. And it says, the opposition tampers with a fair election. Hong Kong protesters got back in line after they cast their votes in effort to deter senior citizens from voting due to long wait times, as most of the elderly are against the riots caused by protesters. The protesters misled the elderly to vote for the pan-democracy camp. The protesters took citizens' ID cards from people in order to stop them from casting their votes. Protesters spread rumours on social platforms to mislead voters. Protesters under the age of 18 stand in the line to disrupt the voting process. Complaints about the unfair actions during the polling day have been rejected by some public officers on duty at the polling stations. Now, each of those claims is illustrated with a little cartoon picture. I think maybe we'll put out a link to this yeah, on I our think Facebook page so people can yeah. see what I'm talking about. Each of them is illustrated with a picture showing these things actually happening. And there are so many things that we can talk about here. I mean, yeah, definitely. But my favourite line on here is uh, you know, the fact that Nothing is illustrated with any kind of proper journalism. There's no pictures, there are no sources, there are no direct quotes from anybody. It's just outlandish claims about what's happening with zero evidence to back it up. But it includes the line, which I read out previously, protesters spread rumours on social platforms to mislead voters. That's precisely what China Daily is doing here. It's quite remarkable. We are to some extent, living in a post-truth age where you can put whatever you like out on social media and, uh, you know, it, it gathers pace and people will take it up and believe it and, and process that. And I think, you know, there will be people who have grasped onto this and, you know, the whole idea of confirmation bias, that if there's a particular opinion you already have, you look for information that supports yeah. the view you already have and that's the bit that you process and take on board. Right. So this will be a narrative that is out there amongst certain groups of people who already particularly fall in line behind the mainland narrative of what's happening in Hong Kong. Yeah, I just want to kind of add something to that, because something I've noticed from this, and what's particularly interesting, and you definitely have to put this up so other people can actually see this, is the kind of infomercials, these these images that we see on, particularly in East Asia, on metro stations, buses, they always have these kind of cutesy kind of cartoon characters about, please give up your seat for the elderly, please stand in a line. And these are the types of characters of which people become familiar in their everyday life these kind of animated cutesy kind of like their head is bigger than the body that kind of things so, i mean i won't go into too much because people can see that but it's very interesting because that is actually showing it in that kind of way so when people see the poster this particular poster which i assume could also go up in different places people would have an immediate association that this is somehow authority that this is also somehow guiding people into correct mm. behaviour, and I think that's I think that's quite 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 interesting. But yeah, please um, have a look at the the image and let us know what you think. Yes, absolutely.
So uh, President Trump signed into law the legislation relating to Hong Kong. That was uh, in the last couple of days. So Yeah. No, I think that's quite a significant thing. I think it sets out the fact that for it to maintain a particular financial status, it has to go through a particular review to ensure that a degree of autonomy is being maintained. I think this is relatively significant. I think it's significant in the sense of whether or not Hong Kong can actually maintain itself as being a financial hub or whether or not that that status as a result of this has 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 gone and whether or not China will seek to look at alternatives for developing financial hub. I, I don't completely disagree with what you're saying. I'm not saying it's insignificant, but I think there's a there's a danger that we're going to over egg the pudding. Oh, yes, there it is. <laughs> That's the you, pudding Marco. has been egged. The pudding has been over egged. No, because so there's a few things that I want to say about this law being signed into force by President Trump. Uh, the first of which is, it's a sim- significant symbolic gesture, but the actual impact is relatively small. It makes a process which is currently in place slightly more formalised. It, it's not going to have any kind of really significant impact, but it is symbolic because it sends a message to right, but China. But there are specific checks and balances that are now legally put into place. Um, and I think, I mean, yes, we. I don't think necessarily at this juncture we can necessarily s- to weigh the importance of it. It will come about when a point in the future happens that they need to do the checks and balances on that degree and level of autonomy. Right. But this is actually my point, because those checks and you're talking about are all subjectively assessed, yes. which means that anybody, anybody, specifically the president, can say yes or no if he particularly chooses to. And this is where I think people in Hong Kong who this week have been, I've seen photos of people holding up signs saying, thank you, Mr. Trump. And there's a, uh, there was a whole thing about uh, Thanksgiving yesterday and some of the protesters waving American flags and so on. And this is obviously in response to what's happened. Don't get too carried away right. by your support from President Trump. He has previously linked support to the Hong Kong protesters with the ongoing trade dispute with yes, China. There is true. no principle whatsoever attached to what he has done for Hong Kong this week. It is entirely self-serving. In addition to that... Yes, he signed this law, but it was quite clear that if he didn't sign this law, Congress actually had the numbers to overrule him uh, and have it signed in anyway without the president's authority. Right. So this this is not some grand gesture of support from President Trump. I suspect not very many of the Hong Kong protesters are listening, but if you are listening, please don't put your eggs in Donald Trump's basket. Okay. Don't don't over egg Donald Trump's basket, if you will. Uh, China's uh, interference in Taiwan's elections and how we can see certain contradictions with the blaming of interference on in the case of the protesters. Um, so they kind of want to kind of move this on because obviously we are only a couple of months away from the Taiwan elections for presidency, and we know within that election that we have two two main candidates, uh, one the current sitting president and the pro-Beijing KMT head, uh, Han Guoyu, um, Korean fish, as they refer to him as. Um, 
but it's actually on on Taiwan that I kind of want to have uh, bring the next conversation. And it actually came out in the news today. And I think it's particularly interesting that um, we know that in terms of lobbying on Capitol Hill, obviously the two largest lobbying groups on Capitol Hill, one is Israel, the other is Taiwan. But actually part of that is a number of different think tanks. And one of the think tanks is referred to as Project 2049 Institute. And they are looking at ways now to which to use the Shanghai communique in 1972 as a way of... Do you want to just say what the Shanghai communique is? Yeah, the Shanghai communique in 1972 was a a joint document to normalise the relations between the US and China, and here being the People's Republic of China, that would come into play in 1979 when the US switched recognition from Taipei to Beijing. The communique really laid the groundwork about how that relationship would be, and so it was over on almost a kind of a, a year period to see how they would normalise relationship following um, the switch of recognition, obviously the switch of recognition being part of that. And so here, what they're hoping, that the Research Institute, which kind of focuses mainly on Asia-Pacific affairs, hopes to achieve that um, a similar communique document would normalise the relations between the US and Taiwan, which currently is based on the Taiwan's Relations Act, one that followed um, the switching of recognition. But here would be a, I think, would set a very high precedent. I think if the US was... Well, not switch recognition, it would be to recognise. I don't think this would be a case of switching. Um, but would be to recognise and normalise this relationship with the US could have uh, kind of a domino effect for others, particularly in the region, to follow suit. What I also find particularly interesting about this was that the Institute also invited the Taiwan-based Prospect Foundation to the US to give a co-presentation on the topic. What's interesting is that the foundation chairman and former foreign minister under Trinshebia, Mark Chen, declined to be involved over the subject being a sensitive issue. And I think that's quite an interesting thing. So this seems to be predominantly US-led. I'm the executive director of the Project 2049 Institute, Mark Stokes. He seems to be leading on this. And this would, I think, first would have the American Institute in Taiwan, the AIT, would be upgraded to a full-fledged embassy. But he wants to put this in line with the Taiwan Symbols of Sovereignty Act, which was recently proposed by U.S. Senator Ted Cruz. Hey, I was just wondering what your thoughts are on this. Well, this is one of those areas where you and I maybe don't necessarily disagree, but we come out from very different perspectives. So, I mean, those people who know us will already know this, but there may be people in Malaysia listening who don't actually know us. Uh, so your background is that you spent a fairly significant period of your life living in Taiwan and working on Taiwan, uh, studying there. Uh, and so, you know, that I'm not going to say colours your view, but that is, that is part of your background and that shapes how your view has come about on, on this situation. For me, I, I spent a fairly significant portion of my life living in mainland China, working there, studying there, travelling there, and I've, I've never even been to Taiwan. And so that has, again, I don't want to say coloured my view, but that's part of my background and it's part of the way that my views are shaped. So we don't. We don't fundamentally disagree about questions of uh, self-determination and human rights and democracy and freedom of speech. We don't fundamentally disagree about those things, but we maybe have slightly different emphasis on 
what is feasible, what's possible, and how these kinds of things might come about. So I found it interesting that you brought this up because the, the particularly the the suggestion of working towards a communique that could establish diplomatic relations, formal diplomatic relations between Taipei and Washington DC. Because I just view that as a complete non-starter. I can't see how that is remotely feasible. I have no issue with people who think that that's something that should happen. Because there are plenty of things that I think should happen, but that I just think are completely unrealistic in the in the international system. And one of those is formal diplomatic recognition of a separate Taiwan from mainland China. I mean, there is no country in the world that formally recognises Taiwan as separate from mainland China. There are nearly every country de facto recognises that because of the way that it's treated in the international system. But the formal recognition, I mean, that's virtually a declaration of war on the People's Republic of China. And it would be whether you could say this is legally correct or not, it would certainly be interpreted by the Chinese as a breach of the Shanghai communique that you mentioned. So you'll be well aware that the Shanghai communique, the US recognised the one China policy. Now, that is this this sort of constructive ambiguity that the US has always taken on this issue, which is whereby they recognise the one China policy. That allows China to to paint this as something that's accepted universally. It allows the United States to say that they haven't sort of really accepted it. But by recognising Taiwan as independent, that would clearly show that you no longer even recognise the One China policy. And that breaches the foundation of the bilateral relationship between the PRC and the United States, which is catastrophic for the world. And so I, I can't, I can't see it as realistic and I'm not even sure it's desirable. Oh, it's interesting. I think yeah, your point is interesting, but we obviously have looked at ways in which where we have seen bilateral communication agreements, joint declarations have kind of been washed over a lot recently, right? If we go right back to the Hong Kong um, situation in terms of the joint declaration there. Um, I, I mean, I mean, I, like you said at the beginning, I don't fundamentally disagree with what you're saying and I think you come from it from very much from an IR perspective and I think you're looking at it through these particular lenses. Um, and you're about to accuse me of being a realist then. But no, but I what I, I what I think is interesting are the conversations and this is why I think this is particularly important. That the I mean this is a think tank. This is a think tank that has particular leverage over Asia Pacific affairs. It is also a point of interest given that the United States very soon will go to their elections. And I think it's, it, it, it's just, it's, it's a process of messaging. And I, and you know, and I, I think the actual conversation on it is important. It's very similar to ones that were happened not so long ago in the last couple of years about the signing of some kind of relations act between Japan and Taiwan. And I think this, this conversation about how a de facto relationship can move. Um, and I think the reality is, is that it's becoming harder and harder to justify and to accept that a democratic, a mature democracy such as Taiwan, one of realistically, I mean, if we were to quote Bruce Jacobson, I think now would be a, an appropriate time to do so, to say probably one of the only mature democracies within the region to not be recognised is something that fundamentally goes against 
the the democratic values of which that the United States supposedly leads by. I think the conversation is interesting. I don't necessarily think... Well, I don't feel that perhaps I agree, would agree that how it moves forward is always going to be challenging. But I I think for many, I appreciate the, the gesture that this conversation is taking place. I think that point, what I mentioned earlier, about the fact that the foundations or think tanks within Taiwan consider this to be a sensitive issue. It was quite telling. Where you, you would typically think that this is the products of, you know, of think tanks or foundations in Taiwan and the United States saying, okay, yes, we can understand why you're feeling this way, but this is a sensitive issue in US-China relations, particularly at a time with the ongoing trade war. But actually, this is coming from the other angle. Mm. Um, and I think that's interesting. In many ways, that kind of illustrates the point that I was making, which, which I know you haven't really fundamentally disagreed with, but that, I mean, sensitive issue is sort of code for shit, we can't talk about this. Right? Not even code, is it? I mean, it's, no. <laughs> it's, we can't talk about this. I mean, and the reason that they can't talk about that is because of the impact that will have on the bilateral relationship, and I'm going to risk controversy in the mainland by calling it a bilateral relationship between China and Taiwan. And so the more you dare to speak about du jour move, moves to du jour independence and sovereignty for Taiwan, the greater risk you have of consequences from the mainland. And then those consequences can range from economic... Uh, embargoes. I mean, not, not even necessarily embargoes. I mean, it, it, can, it can simply be a breakdown of economic relationships at, at various levels. And so it's not, you're not necessarily talking about the whole of China putting an embargo on the whole of Taiwan, but it can be voices that come out of Taiwan uh, find their own business interests or business interests that are linked to those institutes suffering. And so that it, it's kind of... I mean, it's self-censorship. Right. I mean, that's that's what's happening. And that's this is this is a policy that China has pursued, not just with Taiwan, but also we've seen in Hong Kong and further afield policies of self-censorship. Yeah. Uh, let's keep uh, keep our eyes open. We definitely will. That's, a, that's an interesting this, one. See how this moves on. I've... There's one other story that I do want to touch on. And we'll probably just touch on it for this week because it's something that's ongoing and we need to get the results to it. And um, that is the uh, current referendum that's taking place in Bourganville or Bougainville? Bougainville. So you pronounce it Bourganville, I pronounce it Bougainville. It's a little bit like Leviosa and Leviosa, isn't it? Is it? You've <laughs> never watched Harry Potter, have you? Nope. I've never watched any Harry Potter movie or read any Harry Potter book. See? This is what I'm up against. There's some dispute as to how we pronounce this region's yeah. name. Uh, it's an autonomous region in Papua New Guinea, uh, and it fought in a civil war a number of years ago. That civil war came to an end at the beginning of this century. Part of the peace treaty at that time was an agreement that within 20 years, a referendum would take place on independence for this region. And so now we here we are at the end of 2019. That time is running out. The referendum is currently taking place. And the referendum, I believe, opened a week ago and won't close for another, I think, at least eight days. I think it's the 7th of December that it closes. So we'll then get the results after that of whether... So we'll find whether the people of Bougainville have voted for independence. The Papua New Guinean government have not confirmed whether they will actually respect the outcome of the referendum. But it will be very interesting to see, obviously, if they do, we could end up with uh, another new country in the world. I mean, this Yay. happens from time to time. Yay? Are we celebrating new countries now? Is that... Well, a... no, I mean, 
We like new countries. Oh. Yeah, well, that's typical of you separatists, isn't it? <laughs> Nick, any views on Bougainville? I'd just be interested to see how it develops its immediate international relations, given the situation within the Asia-Pacific at the moment. Um, and I think it happens. Our conversations need to go back to China in many ways. And I think how China... Not, I wouldn't say necessarily has any kind of interference or whether or not that even that is a thing, but actually how you go about gaining diplomatic allies or I think this is a, would be a particular thing to follow and I would be following it very closely. There's an interesting philosophical question here, actually, because China has already quietly expressed an interest in investing and developing in Bougainville. It's an, it's, it's an area rich in natural resources, but it also could be strategically important. That's not a criticism of China. There are plenty of countries who invest in places that are rich in natural resources. China is a huge developing country. It makes perfect sense. It's a perfectly logical, reasonable thing to do. What makes it interesting is what you just said about when a new country emerges, then it needs to look for diplomatic allies. And China's position in being one of the countries to first recognise a newly declared independent state that is separated from another through a means of democratic referendum... I think there are some very interesting questions for China on that. It depends how how they weigh that up. Yeah, be- I mean, actually, I think for the listeners maybe interested who are interested in this thing, there was quite a lot of this discussion around um, the Scottish independence vote, and I'm sure that potentially would come up if it was to be repeated. Um, yeah, I, I remember I was doing some research in China uh, in the run-up to the Scottish referendum, and... So I wasn't speaking with very high-level officials, but the officials that I did speak to expressed real surprise that the UK government was allowing an actual vote to take place that a region of the UK could could leave the United Kingdom. All right, so, so this is the time for Pacific Oddities. Pacific Oddities. So, Ed, this, this week is you. Um, you have an oddity. So this week's oddity, uh, and I think... I liked this because, well, partly because it's funny uh, and partly because there's so much about it that I just don't really understand. But also it nicely illustrates an, a common stereotype about Asia that maybe we should explore. This is a story about a gamer who uh, was playing a particular video game. Um, the video game is called Justice Online. So a player of Justice Online. Nick, are you familiar with the game? Um, no, it's not one that I, I'm familiar with. You just play Tetris, don't you? Badly. So in the game Justice Online, this is one of those um, role-playing games where you can develop a character. And, of course, in these games, there are many ways that you can build about the developments. Like like Sims. But the the point is that through... They're usually called experience points. So the longer you play a game, the more points you build them. And you can spend those points to develop your weapons and your costumes and so on. But you can also use actual real-life money to buy things in the game to develop your character. Now, this uh, this character, he's from China, uh, this man from China, he developed his character. He spent... Do you know how much he spent, Nick? No, tell me. He spent $1.3 million, that's US dollars... Seriously? ...developing this character. What has this character got? Well... There is many, I said there are many things I don't understand about this. So I don't understand how you can spend over a million dollars. or I, I don't understand how you can spend any money doing this kind of thing, but that's because I'm from the sort of generation that thinks you buy a computer game, you've got the computer game, it's your computer game. The idea that you have to spend money to carry on playing or to make the game better, I, I, I don't get it. I do understand that that's how the world works these days, and I'm just old, but yeah. it, 
well, it is what it is. But, so, he spends over a million dollars, $1.3 million developing this character, and then his friend placed, accidentally placed his character for sale on another website. And and this in itself is quite interesting. It was news to me that there is another website where you can trade each other's characters. And so it seems that he was a bit drunk and he accidentally played... And why has he got access to his friend's computer? Anyway, so many, so many questions. We'll come to them. But he placed this character for sale and sold it for... How much did he sell it for, Nick? I don't know. He sold it for $643. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, So I've got this article from um, Mashable Southeast Asia, which is not an altogether credible source, Uh, but the way they worded this was was quite funny. So uh, they've written, his friend had stupidly, and then they've crossed out stupidly, (laughs) and then replaced that with accidentally sold his character for $643. Wow. Um, so many questions, Nick, and obviously you're more down with the kids than I am. So, yeah. I mean, tell me, how does this come about? Um, I, all I can say is, yikes. Absurd. It is. Does it say how long he'd been developing this character? I do not have that information, but um, you the, ex- the article does mention a law which I was not familiar with. In which China, says this is, that this, right? So this is in China, yeah. That children are not allowed to spend more than... It says $28.40 per month for in-game items. I mean, if that's true, then I don't see how you've got to 1.3 million. Oh, maybe he's not a child. Maybe that's the reason. He's not protected by those rules. Ah, yeah. so maybe he's into the grown-up. I mean, he must be loaded. There's a part of me... Well, actually, there's a huge part of me. Most of me has no sympathy with this guy. If you're spending over a million dollars on a character online, but... you must be loaded and not care that... <laughs> Sorry. Can you not cough, please? It really does spoil the recording. It makes my editing job really significantly more difficult. So if you've got, like, over a million dollars to spend on developing a character online, uh, well, frankly, you deserve to lose it. I'm just thinking about this because I'm thinking, is it possible that certain parts of your costumes or your wardrobe, your online wardrobe for this character, are just tradable? So in actual fact, it's an accumulative value as opposed to what he's actually spent. So say he bought, I don't know, a T-shirt on for his character. I mean, I don't know what they look like, right? But let's just say it's a T-shirt and he bought it for $20, but was able to sell that T-shirt for $60. And so actually Mm. the development of that amount has actually come over a period of time of... So it's not... He's probably not actually has physically spent that much. So it's a bit like those people who collect trainers. Yes. That's something else about the modern world that I don't understand. Yeah. So like a whole stock market for trainers. Well, people, yeah, there is. I mean, like people, people collect trainers. That's a thing. Yeah. I mean, so I can just sell mine. I I don't think people would buy your trainers. There, there is a twist to this story in that this, uh, so this happened in uh, Sichuan in China and it actually goes to court in Sichuan. And the person who bought the character is ordered to return it. So the man gets his million-dollar character back, but has to pay compensation of around $12,000. So the guy who's bought it for $600 has to give it back, but gets $12,000 in return. So, I mean, he's, you know, he's more than $11,000 up on this. So, so he's not done badly out of that. He's ultimately made a profit of $11,000. The guy who's clearly loaded, because he spent over a million dollars developing a character, has got his character back, and it's only cost him $11,000, Presumably, he's no longer friends with that dipshit. No. But yeah, great story, eh? Um, is there anything else we need to talk about? 
Um, I think, I mean, we've done quite a lot today. We haven't got time to do this now because we've got way too much for this pod. And, you know, I've got to edit this and I've got meetings to get to. So, uh, and here's the weekend. Right? It is the weekend. We should be in a pub by now. So before we finish, we'd like to encourage you to give us feedback, suggestions, comments, uh, questions, correcting our mistakes. I'm sure that we've screwed something up somewhere along the line. So please do that through our Facebook page or, you know, get in touch by email. We'd love to hear from you. I mentioned earlier on that I spoke to Carl in Sweden. Hello again, Carl. Hello again. He'll be pushing his son around a park in Stockholm and he uses us to distract himself from the fact that he's doing that. But one of the suggestions that Carl put to me was that we introduce some discussion about life as an academic working on the Asia Pacific. And he said that he, Carl is an academic, a much better academic than I'll ever be. And he said he thought that would be kind of an interesting thing for us to talk about. We don't have time to do it this week because we've already gone over our allotted limit. But perhaps that's something we'll revisit in coming weeks. Um, maybe we'll talk about our own lives as academics, um, but it would be great if we can have some guests on, fellow academics, whether that's colleagues here or visitors that we get to the university, we'll collar them and force them to come on our podcast. I think that's a great idea. Also talk about other people's, like <laughs> us talk about other people's academic lives. Yeah. Like in some kind of like bitchy way, maybe. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's bitch about people. I like that idea. This would be great because no one will ever know. Well, people in Malaysia will. <laughs> <laughs> so if you've got any questions if you think of any questions that you would like answering about life as an academic whether you are an academic yourself or whether you're a student an aspiring academic somebody who just thinks academics are weird and live in their ivory tower so i've got a dash i've got a meeting okay um so this has been fun let's do it again sometime we just might